Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in this episode, I talk to Pam Mandel about travel that changes the way you think about the world. We all have ideas about places that are far away, but when you talk to real people who live there, it's hard to hold on to your preconceived notions. Those encounters can remain with you in memory, even as you change, and the place you left changes too. We're all so far downstream from who we used to be, as Pam writes in her book and we discuss in this interview. And this resonates with me as I try to capture some of my thoughts in this show about travels that changed me in the past. Because the world is constantly changing and so are we. And the memories we have are of a different place and a different person because we're just not that person anymore. And even if we go back to a place, it will always be a different experience. So Pam talks about how you don't even have to go out of your own country to challenge your ideas of a place as well as how our emotional response can be complicated, especially with a country like Israel, which has a mythic quality in one way, whereas the reality can be quite different. And I talked a bit about my experience of Jerusalem in episode one, and several of my thrillers feature Israel because I've travelled there quite a lot, particularly Gates of Hell and End of Days, because it has such a place in my heart, although again, it's complicated. We also talk about how to push your comfort zone when travelling in order to get out of our routines and when it's just a good idea to retreat to what you know. So I hope you enjoy the interview with Pam. Pam Mandel is an award-winning freelance travel writer and co-founder of The Statesider, a newsletter of US travel stories. Her latest book is The Same River Twice, a memoir of dirtbag backpackers, bomb shelters and bad travel. So welcome, Pam. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's exciting to have you here. So I wanted to start with a lovely quote from the book where you say, I imagined the road miles accruing to me like I was being tattooed with maps of where I'd been. And there are so many countries in the book and you've obviously traveled since. So what are the places that particularly stick in your mind that remain with you as those tattoos? Wow. So you're right. I have been to a lot of places since I wrote this book. And one of the places I got to go, I think it's five years or six years ago now, is Antarctica. And you, of course, can never forget that. But lately, more recently, I've been traveling in the U.S., my home country more. And a few years ago, I spent 10 days driving around the Mississippi Delta. And I was really affected by that trip. It really stuck with me. I think it's really important that we explore our home countries too. And to be in the place where so much American history had happened was really affecting. And I think about Mississippi all the time. And it really changed my view of my own country. It changed my view of American history. It changed my view of what these places that we look like as 
red states in the U.S. You know, it, re- it was a, it was a very affecting trip. The other place that really sticks with me was, you know, I went to art school. I have a BFA, and I did a bunch of art history, and I had wanted forever to go to Angkor Wat in Cambodia, and that was definitely a dream come true, but I had not realized the tragedy of what happened in the history there, and so I was deeply affected by my trip to Cambodia, too, and I think about Cambodia frequently, all the time. Mm. Wow, those are three really different places, Antarctica, the Mississippi <laughs> Delta, and, and Angkor Wat. I mean, yeah, I don't think you could have picked three more different places, but that in itself says something. I mean, obviously, they're all very different, and but you picked them all for a reason. So what what almost binds them together in your mind as the things that have stood out the most? They they change your worldview. That they they are travel that changes the way you think about the world around you. For a while after I came back from Antarctica, I would lie in bed at night in my in my dark room in Seattle and I had this image in my head of the shape of the planet and how I had been to the bottom of it and then I thought that's not even real <laughs> you know so I think that it's that that effectiveness effective like effect with an a not effect with an e that the, the way it really changes the way you think about the world that made those things stay with me and then again, in my mind, I'm thinking, and Anto- I've got very clear visuals of those three things. And, you know, that you've got the white ice and then the delta, I think, of the, the river. I actually interviewed um, a, a guy on this show about the Mississippi Delta. So I've mm. you know, been ha- talking about that. And and also Cambodia as well. I think anyone who's seen uh, Lara Croft, <laughs> for example, right. has the temple in, in Angkor Wat, which is interesting. But th- there's a huge difference, I think, with the, the people as well. So, of course, we think of Antarctica, we think no people. People, and you think on the opposite end, Cambodia, lots and lots of people. So how does the sort of um, the people and the culture of a place make a difference, do you think, to what you're saying about changing your worldview? Right. So I think that that I think about this with Mississippi a lot specifically because I live in the northwest corner of the United States and I live in a, a very liberal enclave and I grew up on the west coast and I grew up with surrounded by very liberal values and we are raised with certain ideas about places that are far away from us right and when I went to the Mississippi Delta and I had lots of so I was traveling by myself so I had lots of one-on-one interactions with people and I guess I it I came away with a real sense of the humanity of people there. They can't people can't be so abstract when you interact with them, right? When you talk to actual real humans who live in a place, it is really hard to hold on to your preconceived notions about what the people in those places are like. I think that's so true and that is one of the, the sort of the magic of travel. You meet someone on the other side of the world or as you say in your same country and you realize that you have more in common than you you have in differences so that's great to hear yeah even when they're different so like I don't know that I was I didn't have those kind of deep personal interactions when I was in Cambodia you know I don't speak the language and I was very much a tourist there so I didn't have these sort of one-on-one kind of things like I could have while I was in the Delta where I was just kind of a, a local outsider, local U.S. outsider, Pacific Northwest. 
So it was very easy for me to converse with people there, but the reality of it is substantial, right? You see the people there and you it sort of shakes you it shakes your view a little bit. So uh, you also talk about your family background in the book and your experience of kibbutz. And now for you and people listening, my husband Jonathan is Jewish and his parents come from the sort of Jewish immigrant uh, family and I've been to Israel a lot. And so I was I'm always so interested to hear about what people think about Israel and what it means because you weren't born there but you have uh, you know context there, I guess. So tell us a bit about what you felt there and what you feel about Israel now uh, versus then, perhaps. Right. So I think that I wasn't raised with a deep connection to the Jewish homeland. I knew it existed and that was about it. I had this idea of this sort of Jewish summer camp where, I don't know, the people, the tribe goes to work on farms and sing songs and this very sort of bucolic, romanticized view, but I didn't really have any sense of the history of the place. Some of that stuff, I think, is sort of plays out to be true on kibbutz, especially you live in this community, everything seems very well taken care of and very well managed. And you could probably convince yourself that that is the extent of the story if you don't look beyond the fences of that community. Also, it's, it's worth pointing out that kibbutz is also on a spectrum of conservative to liberal. And I was in mostly pretty liberal communities. So, you know, your experience there could be different as well. If you're in a conservative kibbutz, you might find that all of the rules around how women behave and are separate from men and all that stuff are part of your experience. They were not part of mine. So a lot of that stuff was sort of filled in for me. I found that it was really nice. I really appreciated being in a place where I didn't have to explain ever what it meant to be Jewish. Nobody asks you about it when you're in Israel. Nobody says, oh, you know what? Like, I've never actually met a Jewish person ever in my life. Not that long ago, I met a young woman at a party who told me that she had never met any Jews at all before she moved to Seattle. So, is crazy. So that part of it, I really appreciated the fact that this piece of my identity was not something that I was constantly having to explain. So the thing that I've learned since is that it's a much more complicated place. You know, I was educated into the more into the history of the country, right? And I, I find myself increasingly conflicted. I don't support the current government. I think it's a tragedy what's happening with the occupied territories. So it's become increasingly complicated. And it's also this stuff sits side by side with the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and the US. And it's just a mess, right? It's just, it is just a mess. And I feel a little bit like that, like this is very reductive, but I feel a little bit like that Facebook status that says it's complicated, right? Like I'm in a relationship with this nation, whether I want to be or not, people assume that I have certain politics because I'm Jewish, which is faulty. People assume that I either agree with or don't agree with various administrations or what's going on there because I'm Jewish, right? They immediately apply a filter to what they think of as my worldview. And I'd say that about 95% of the time, they're absolutely wrong. So, hmm, yeah, it's a super complicated question. How long do we have? <laughs> well, but I think I think almost 
that has to be the answer. I mean, and in fact, if you have a very clear worldview of Israel, then you're probably one extreme or the other. Whereas, like you said, you have liberal worldviews and uh, as do I, and my husband is secular Jewish and we also have very complicated views of the place. So I I think that's just, but if you think about the history of Israel and uh, Palestine and everything it's been called for thousands of years, then it is has always been complicated and perhaps always will be. And But I was interested, have you been back since you travelled there and wrote about it? Obviously, you've written in the book and the book is set in the past. Have you been back? And I mean, it's, it's changed a lot since I first went in the 90s, which I guess was after you were there uh, originally. But ha- have you been back at all? I haven't. And I would really like to go very much. I was invited to participate in a tour there, one of those press things. This is, it, it might be a decade ago now. It's been, it was a while back. And I started looking into the organization that was hosting it. And it was basically a propaganda machine. And I declined. I decided that I was not going to take that trip and that I wasn't going to do one that was set up by this very staunchly Zionist organization. One of the things they had on their agenda was that you would get to meet a real Israeli soldier. And I was like, this is clearly written for somebody who doesn't understand that everybody in the country has been at some point a real Israeli soldier. And one is making your sandwich or handing you the keys to your hotel room (laughs) or driving your bus or sitting next to you on the bus. And the young woman next to you on the bus is just as likely to be uh, carrying a weapon as she is to be going to her software coding job. And I was like, no, I'm not doing this. So it is it is absolutely on my uh, list of things I would like to do, but I'm not going to do it in that particular way. And I just haven't, it just hasn't made the cut yet. But I very much hope to go back because I really want to see that change. Yes, definitely. It's a, such an interesting country. Right. Uh, talking of the sort of the past, you you revisited your younger self in this book. And also a, another quote, you say, we're all so far downstream from who we used to be. And um, that totally resonates with me. I mean, even um, going back to Israel, when I went back in my 40s, uh, I remembered being there age 16 when the bombs were coming down in that first Gulf War. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm so different. The country's so different. And it's, it's very hard that thing you did there writing about the past so how did you manage that and manage memory in that way (laughs) yeah that's funny people ask me that a lot because a lot of this stuff is is like it seemed very clear to me I I tapped this well of memory but the other thing that was it was really important to me as I was writing this book to hold that line and I was very aware especially in the revision process when my editor would say well you need to explain to the reader For example, there's a bit in the book where I go to Sinai, right? And at the time, Sinai was being handed back from Israel to Egypt. And he said, my editor said to me, look, I think you need to give the reader some context so they understand the significance of this. And so I would have to write these historical bits that provided context for this piece of land and what was happening at the time. But I tried really hard not to apply the voice of my current self in the book. I wanted it to be my my, the voice of my 19, 20 year old self telling this story. It was really hard, actually. And I would have to check myself repeatedly. Like, am I, what am I saying here? And so I could move out a little bit when I needed to write a brief historical or cultural context for things. And then I would have to go back in. 
And it really, that stuff got revised out. You know, I did, I don't know, six, seven rounds of revisions with my editor. And every time I came across something that sounded like I was talking about something from the outside, I was like, is this historic context or is this me just telling the story? And if it was me telling the story and I was applying some kind of external future self-knowledge to it, I would whack that out of there. It was actually really hard. But the other thing that happened over the course of my writing the book was the more I worked on it, the more I remembered. It's like there are, what's the inverse of diminishing returns, right? When like the you get, mm. like every time I remembered something, it would lead me to something else, right? So the initial draft was hard because I had to dig well into the depths of my subconscious to find these things. And it just got progressively easier because I would remember something and it would get to the point where I would be where I would be revising. And I was determined to write forward, not go back and revise until I had reached the end. But I would put notes to myself because I would remember these things. Oh, right. Remember that guy on the bus? Put that and I would write a note for to myself in the in the manuscript and come back and add it later. It was a super strange process, actually. And so if you're there trying to channel your 20-year-old self and you're finding these memories coming back, and so how you must have reflected on how much you have changed, how much you're so far downstream from who you were. So what did you come up with? Like, How has travel changed you or how has the world changed you since then? Yeah, I think a lot about when I think specifically about travel and the process of travel, which is sort of not a direct answer. Forgive me, I'm veering slightly off your question, but the nature of travel is very, very different now in that there's a couple of things. One is that like it's so hard to get lost now, right? It's really hard to get lost and it's really hard to disappear. You have to make this concerted effort to be in places where you're not connected. You know, I see these things about people doing these silent retreats for two weeks and they'll tell everybody they're disappearing and they're not going to be heard from for who knows how long and two weeks, whatever. And that was basically what travel was when I did this trip, right? You could just disconnect. And now, you know, I travel with my phone in my pocket and I'm always connected and I'm looking for a signal and I need to see my email and my reservations are made through my phone and I'm never lost and I'm never stuck. It just doesn't happen. And it's interesting because I did pick, pick out that as well from the book. You, t- you definitely talk about this. and But it's interesting because I uh, also remember traveling then and you're right, it, we, we were well out of contact, but I wouldn't now want to give up some of the safety aspects aspects and some of the things that the benefits of technology. So if we assume that we want the benefits of technology, how can we push our comfort zone in other ways now in the same way that we used to have it pushed in that way? Right. I guess it's so hard to think about what's outside the edge of my comfort zone. What is, you know, I'm an adventurous person still, even 30 years later, I think of myself as being a really adventurous traveler and I'm not afraid to do stuff on your own. So I think maybe if people haven't traveled alone, that's a really good way to do it because you're forced to interact with others, you know, changing up the sort of your method of transportation. I, I do this thing where I try really hard when I get to a new place to never get a car. And that's kind of a big deal in the U.S. It's not always possible, but I make myself use public transportation to get from the airport to where I'm going, if it's at all sensible. You know, if I'm arriving at three in the morning, I'm going to take a cab. But I try really hard to to get my feet on the ground as 
quickly as possible and to break that sort of, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to travel in this protected corridor, right? I'm just going to get on a local bus. And I remember getting on a bus in Denver and for, we went to a transit center and we sat there for 20 minutes, right? Because the bus was on this schedule and I was like, oh, have I made a mistake? This is dumb. But I rolled into Denver through this, this, I got to see the city in ways I wouldn't see it otherwise, right? So I like doing that and that you see the people who take the bus, right? You're not, you're seeing just regular people who live there and go to their jobs. And I don't know that that necessarily pushes a lot of people outside their comfort zone, but I think it's true for some. And it just connects you to a place in a way that your typical take, take a car from the airport, take the cab, whatever, doesn't do. And that, that helps reset. And then you get a view of a place. And it's such a hard thing to break your habits. I think actually that's probably even more of a challenge in your home country. Like you mentioned getting a car. As a European, uh, as a Brit, I never get a car. We don't own a car and I can't drive. But I don't think I've ever had a car in America. And I've been there so many times. My default is public transport. So for me, pushing the pushing my comfort zone would be hiring a car in America right. and driving right. on the other side of the road and, and stuff like that. We which is interesting. And you mentioned Denver there. I actually, you know, with jet lag, I, I'm normally up at sort of 4am you know, on American time. And I went for a walk around downtown Denver at sort of 5am when the streets around the centre of Denver are, are full of homeless people. And I remember how shocked I was, really, really shocked to find what I thought was Denver was not at all what I had expected. And Uh so maybe that's something too, is walking at a different time of day or as long as it's safe for for you to do that. But I I think I learned a lot by walking around at a time of day that wasn't commuter time. Do you walk around cities? Oh yeah. That's almost always the first thing I do when I get to a new place is I go and I and I put my bags down wherever I'm staying. And then I look at my phone and I'm like, where's the nearest cafe? And then I walk to the nearest cafe and I get coffee and I sit somewhere with a window or outside if weather permits. And I just look at where I am and I listen. And then I'll take a walk around the neighborhood to figure out where I am and what it's like. I I love doing that. Actually, it's one of my favorite things to do is to arrive at a new place, drop my stuff and go for a walk. It's because then you get this this look at where you are. You get oriented to your destination in a way that just going to the hotel and focusing on your agenda, whatever your tourist activities are, doesn't give you. And I think even though you say coffee, it's too easy in America. And of course, there's a lot of these chains all over the world. It's too easy to say, well, I'll go to the Starbucks because I know I, I know what I get at the Starbucks. But instead, tr- maybe try an independent coffee store that that might have something that you wouldn't normally have. And then I always also eating is really important. Eating things that you might not find in your home town or your home state. Right. So, but, you know, Starbucks, as an example, so Starbucks is a total monolith and I live in Seattle, the home of this giant monster coffee company. But the funny thing about Starbucks is that it's, while it's a very standardized sort of chain, the people who go to the neighborhood Starbucks are a reflection of that neighborhood, right? And so people who are focused on independent cafes in the U.S., for example, There may be a certain type of people and people who will go to a chain restaurant like a Starbucks are a different kind of people. So you may see a different reflection of a community, even if you're picking a place that's a standard 
monolithic chain because Starbucks doesn't decide who's going there. They pick a location, right? And it's the people who go there. And you'll find that there are like knitting circles or immigrant communities that are hanging out there. The kids who are there are there because they get to go to Starbucks and there's free Wi-Fi. So I don't, I'm less snobby about indie coffee and chains than I used to be as much as I personally would prefer to not have this giant coffee chain determining what coffee culture is. They, they don't define who's there. If you go to the Starbucks in the middle of Pike Place Market here in Seattle, it's full of tourists. If you go to the Starbucks down at the transit center south of me, maybe 15 minutes closer to the airport, it's a hugely diverse community because it's full of immigrants. So there's a possible reflection of what your neighborhood is like in that Starbucks, even if Starbucks itself is a monolith. And sometimes you just want to you just want the familiar. And I'm trying to remember what city I was in. I think it might have been, shoot, where was it? Maybe it was Singapore that I was on a very long stopover. And I saw this Starbucks and I was like, oh, it was hot. It was super muggy. And I was like, you know what? I bet I can get a Frappuccino there and it will be air conditioned. So it can definitely be this island of familiarity and comfort in, in a place where things start to get wearing on you you know <laughs> mm. oh absolutely so you, you mentioned um Seattle there and I wondered as someone who's obviously traveled a lot and uh, have you found home in Seattle and what does home mean to you Mm, that's such a big question, isn't it? And in short, the answer is yes. Seattle has become very much my home. It is a place where I know how everything works. I have such good friends here. I have a, an, a such a good community around me. It feels very much like home. And I, I think there is a, a familiarity that makes a place feel like home. There is a security that makes a place feel like home. Seattle could absolutely be more diverse and it has been becoming that way over the last, I don't know, maybe 10 years or so. It was pretty white when I first moved here and now it's really starting to look like a more diverse community. And that that also makes me feel like home because those are things that I thrive in. I, I enjoy tremendously diverse communities. So, yeah, but also home is, I, I feel like it's a transitory idea too, right? Where, like, what's home for me now? Ask me in five years and I might be like, no, it's time for change. Something has shifted. Mm. And I don't know what that would be. And I, I struggle with this question, which is why I often ask it. But how long did it take you to call Seattle home? And was there, is it just an amount of time, do you think? Or is it finding your niche within the community, as, as you say? Mm, I think it's the I think it's the latter, right? So I think probably I had been here for maybe two years, and I was still I was working really I was working retail I was scraping by, I didn't have a lot of money in my pocket, but I felt really connected to the place. You know, I I had made very good friends almost immediately here, which there's this myth about this thing called the Seattle freeze, where it's supposedly a hard place to make friends. And I found that that was not true. I connected with people that I'm still really close to. I just had coffee and cake with my best friend who I met the first winter I moved to Seattle. So, but I think, I think that, um, that idea of deep personal connections is probably what does it 
And then I wanted to come back on the book because the subtitle includes bad travel. And this is I, this kind of is challenging to me because I've had some pretty awful experiences, uh, as you mentioned, some of yours as well. But can travel ever be totally bad or are these difficult times, inevitable, really difficult times, a learning ex- experience? So there's two things. One is sort of this this difficult learning experience kind of thing, right? Or this idea that you end up in a place where you don't really understand what's going on and you have to figure it out. And I think those kinds of experiences are they're totally great, right? Like I love ending up in a place where I can't figure out how things work. I think about, I was in Italy and I was driving and I stopped at a gas station because the Italian gas stations have incredible sandwiches, right? And I could not, it was chaos in there. There, The place was packed and I could not figure out how to get a sandwich. And I had to stand there and watch what was happening with no Italian. I was like, okay, so I need to order from that person and they're going to give me a ticket, which I have to give to another person. And then I have to pay for the thing, right? There's this whole process that I had to decode, right? That's difficult and sort of fun, right? Mm. And so there's the challenge. You have to unravel this challenge. But there's also the idea of, I think there's a level of irresponsibility where you end up washed up with no money in a place where you cannot take care of yourself and you have to rely on the locals to get fed. That's not cool. If you end up shoplifting, that's bad travel, right? (laughs) So there is definitely a line to be crossed in which travel is bad. And there's this spoiler alert. There's a bit where my boyfriend in this book is shoplifting. That is not good travel, no matter how you slice it. We had run out of money. We were living on the beach. We were being fed by the Roma community camp that lived up the beach. And my boyfriend was shoplifting to get us dessert. There, I don't know how to slice that as good. No, but I would argue that that is bad living as opposed to bad travel. I mean, <laughs> if I mean, you presumably you had to do that. It was not something you chose to do. And also, I guess in a way, it demonstrates how people are wonderful. You know, across the the whole world. If you're in trouble while traveling, usually someone's going to help you. And I, th- I feel like a lot of people won't travel or fear traveling because they're afraid of people and generally people are pretty wonderful right so two things one is the first thing is that like we put ourselves in that situation we made a series of bad choices that were driven by our desire for travel that ended up in that that landed us in that situation so so I I would still say that that was bad travel rather than bad living because we like we should have stopped. Right. We continued to travel, even though we didn't have the resources to do so. And so I would Mm. say that's not good travel. And then as far as your sort of kindness of strangers philosophy, I cannot agree with that enough. I am just continually taken by it. And, you know, if I go back to Mississippi, I was I was in this very small town on uh, on a Saturday afternoon and I, it was in a shop and I was talking to the, sh- to the shopkeeper and she asked me where I was going next and I told her and she said, oh my God, you can't go there because everything will be closed and you won't get any food and you have to make sure that you get something to eat and you're going to need to go to this. And she pulls out her phone and she's like looking for a place for me to have dinner because everything's closed in Mississippi on Sunday except for a few fast food joints on the highway. And 
her concern was so real, you know, and I'm a grown woman with a car and a credit card and a phone. And like, I know how to, I know how to get by, right? Like, it's okay to me to eat cereal for dinner if I have to, I'm not going to starve. But she was genuinely concerned that I was going to go without a decent meal that night. And, you know, that kind of thing is very small, but it still happens to me all the time. I love that about traveling that people will, they will take you under their wing with such kindness. Mm, and often you you only just have to ask someone in the area. I was just thinking there, you mentioned Italy and I've been to Venice uh, three times. And the first, <laughs> there was just this terrible time where we just were so touristy. We ate the worst food and stayed in the worst places and just right. had the worst experience because right. we just didn't even try to get off the beaten track or even ask a local, like, where should we eat for dinner as opposed to this horrible tourist pizza joint? Which right, is- right. Right, right. That's, yeah. that's a rookie mistake that I keep making, by the way. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, sorry, if, you, if you're if you in Italy or Spain or anywhere that doesn't speak your language and you go somewhere and you're, you, you can understand people speaking, like you really should go to a place where you don't understand the language. Right, right. Because, keep it moving. <laughs> yeah, because that's the best food. That is, and, right. Yeah, and the same in America, right? Depending on which state you're in, you should be eating in a place where they have the accent of the state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree completely. Yeah, yeah. You got to keep moving. If it seems like the place is full of tourists, keep moving, keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> but although, again, when I think about that sort of Starbucks in Singapore, I'm like, sometimes it is just what you want. Like I'm trying, I've been trying really hard to get off my high horse about snobby tourist things. Like I had this great adventure and went to this place where I couldn't understand. And then they just brought me food and it was great. And sometimes you want something familiar. Oh yeah, absolutely. Maybe even at least once then on your trip. <laughs> right, right. Just as, just like as an island to refill your battery for adventure. You're like, I'm going to have this frappuccino and then I'm going to go find out what this whole hot pot thing is about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But first, I need the frappuccino. <laughs> uh, and I'm very interested because you co-founded the State Cider and your blog, you say, we want to make American travel interesting again. So, and that implies it wasn't interesting. But I, I wondered, you know, what what is this attitude shift interesting? Right. So I don't. So when we looked at my co-founders and I looked at what the landscape was like for the media landscape was like the stories that were being told about American travel, they fell into a bunch of really specific categories, right? We have national parks, we have Route 66, we have this mythical idea of California, there's Disney and these resorts. And these are all excellent, fun things. But the United States is full of considerably more complicated things than that, right? We have a lot of super interesting immigrant communities that have been here for a long time. And we have places where the ideas of what are what's American intersects with outside influences. We have a zillion kinds of tacos, you know, (laughs) so I guess it's possible that American travel is inherently interesting to outsiders, but to those of us as Americans, I think we're trying to peel back those dominant myths about what America looks like, what America sounds like, what America tastes like. Like we are not just hamburgers. We are many, many kinds of noodles also. And to get beyond us, that surface 
story about what the U.S. looks like. You know, I think it's really fun. Don't get me wrong. I love the national parks and the idea of driving Route 66 in a giant car seems like a grand adventure and the landscape spectacular. But there are generations of, I don't know, Vietnamese immigrants who are making pho along Route 66, say, right? Like, how'd they get there? What are they doing? How'd they end up in the middle of Montana? That's also an American story. Yeah, I I love that. And I wonder if that is going to take off even more in these sort of, we're recording this, the pandemic is still going on. Do you think Americans who might have just left and gone somewhere else are staying home and trying to rediscover their own country? I can tell you that collectively at the State Starter, we want this to be true. This is something that we are hopeful of. And one of my co-founders, he wrote a story about, he actually wrote a story that's on the State Starter. My co-founder, Andy Murdoch, wrote this story about how he went to Paris. And he was like, you know, it occurred to me, this was before the pandemic. He spent a lot of time thinking about why he'd gone on a plane to go all the way to, to France to get... French baking when we have so much of it right here. And this is not to deride the things that France has to offer, but just that if he had decided what I really want is French baking, and that's the impetus behind my trip, can I find that here? The answer in my neighborhood is yes, we have a spectacular French bakery that's far too close to my house. (laughs) I can walk there, and that is too close to be able to get there twice baked on my croissant. But there, yes, I, I really, I think we all hope that's true. And, and I think that domestic travel is going to be the first thing that we'll get back when we are able to feel like we can safely travel again. And like our traveling isn't putting other people at risk. We're going to do things that are closer to home. And hopefully people will explore their backyards with a greater curiosity than they have before. I live north of a, just north, like like two miles north of a pretty diverse immigrant neighborhood. And I remember going there once to a street festival and there were all these Cambodian rappers (laughs) rapping in Khmer. This was two miles from my house, right? Really literally just down the road from me. And I was just like, what is happening here? And how did I not know that this was happening right in my backyard? I mean, I had been all the way to Cambodia and there was this Cambodian rap scene happening on the streets two miles away from me right so (laughs) that kind of stuff is happening and hopefully in our in our search for the excitement of finding new things we also look in our own backyards yeah I'm doing the same thing here in the UK you know I would normally just go to Europe and now I'm like yes okay I'm just gonna look at my own country but we're almost out of time so this is the books and travel show so apart from your own book what are a few travel books that you love and recommend right right so my first two picks in answer to this question are not traditional travel books they, they're both fictional. One's called Sharks in the Time of Saviors. That's Kawhi Strong Washburn. And that book takes place in Hawaii. Now, I have spent, actually, it takes place in Hawaii and in, in Washington State and in Oregon because the characters go to the mainland. So I spent a lot of time in Hawaii. I used to have a regular column about Hawaii. And the thing that I love about this book is that it presents a Hawaii that I observed and rarely see written about in materials about Hawaii. And it is so real and so moving. So I love this book in the 
sort of realness of how it presents the people and and the state. So that's that, and it, you know anybody asks me like what's the best thing you've read lately, and that is at the top of my list: Sharks in the Time of Saviors. I also read a book called Stay and Fight, which is another fictional book that takes place in Appalachia. And the thing that I like about that book is that the main characters in that book are super complicated. And when, you know, we think about Appalachia here in the United States, we have this very narrow view, this very cliched view of where we go, where our brains want to take us. And this book refuses to allow us to do that. So the characters are super complicated and the way they live on the land sort of you think about these sort of backcountry poor people living by their wits and they do indeed do this it doesn't go well but they're not the kind of people that you expect to see doing this so mm. that's all I don't want to do spoilers <laughs> so yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, but both of those books really stuck with me for the way they presented the people and landscapes that we have these ideas in our head about in new ways, real ways that seemed much more detailed than you're, than we're used to seeing. I read, it's probably last year that I read Lawrence Wright's God Save Texas. And with everything that just happened in Texas, you know, they had that terrible freeze Mm. and Texas is a mess. It's a mess politically. And this book explains how it got that way. So Lawrence Wright does all this stuff in the state of Texas and unpacks the complicated mess that the state of Texas is. I love this book. It's really great. And then my last one is called Buttermilk Graffiti by Edward Lee. And Edward Lee was a, was, is, was, Edward Lee is a celebrity chef, but he wrote this book where he went on a road trip to go find American food. And he defines American food very, very broadly. He's not just eating fried chicken. Uh, he's and so it's that was really interesting and he's of Korean descent he's the the son of Korean immigrants so he comes from an immigrant background and he runs a southern restaurant where he cooks traditional southern cooking Mm. but that's not where his background is and so it's interesting to follow this journey where he goes with you know sometimes he travels with a chef sometimes he's on his own he goes out with fishermen in the gulf looking for shrimp. It's a great book. I really enjoyed it. And he's an interesting guy. I remember him talking about how Kentucky was more than Mitch McConnell and that we needed to see the world in a broader way. We need to see the U.S. in a broader way and stop dismissing these places as red state, blue state, because we were missing out. Mm. Oh, no, I I love getting uh, book recommendations. It's always so fascinating. So where can people find you and your books online? So I am always findable as Nerds Eye View on Twitter. My website is nerdseyeview.com. My book is the same, River Twice. It's published by Skyhorse, but there are links to where to acquire it on my website. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Pam. That was great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.